Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fiala Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? Have you been enjoying last week's bookshop hoard? Um, yes, I'm finding out how to live safely in a science fictional universe. Oh, gosh. Any, any tips? Well, I haven't finished it yet, so I can't tell you. Okay, do, do moment, report I'm back. I'm living unsafely in the science fictional universe. <laughs> I think I probably am too. Um, well, I've been, I've been, I've been cracking on with um, Henry Green, and I can't seem to, I can't just in general can't seem to escape the Second World War at the moment. It's just everything I read or watch seems to take me back to it. I mean, as though I mean, I wasn't there personally. <laughs> is Henry Green? Is it set in the war? Well, Loving is, and that's the one that I'm reading at the moment. That's the one set in the Irish country house um, among the servants, and it's all kind oh, of yes. gossip and yeah. half-truths and pleasure-seeking against the backdrop of, of you know, World War II in the distance um, encroaching in its, in its ways. Um, so who knows? Next week I might be reading something more contemporary. Yep. I can't make any promises. We'll, 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 we'll find out next week. <laughs> what a cliffhanger. Um, well, coming up on this week's show, um, our politics editor, Toby Lishtig, has watched a handful of recent films with political stories, mostly atrocities, at their hearts, works of documentary and fiction. He'll talk us through them and weigh up the relative merits of the factual versus the fictional. And a lost Proust manuscript has finally been published. We'll take a look at the 75 manuscript pages handwritten on unruled paper currently setting the world of French letters alight. But first, it is 100 years since the partition of the island of Ireland. And this week we have a run of articles that approach the matter from different angles from the how and the why of the border to the bitter terrorising aftermath of civil war and on to the sense of return of the past 
bubbling up, scolding once more that haunts the present moment. It's in the midst of the year-long post-partition civil war with, as Yates put it, violence upon the roads, that we begin this week with an essay by Patricia Craig, the writer and critic from Northern Ireland. Patricia joins us on the line now. Hello, Patricia. Hello. Um, thanks very much for, for joining us. Um, perilous, fraught, sad, deadly, fear, loathing, these adjectives leave one in no doubt as to the feeling of the time you take us to in County Wexford, where your story takes place. But could you set the broader scene a little, please? Um, uh, yes, I probably can. Um, uh, first of all, I'd like to say that now that we actually have the centenary of partition, it seems a very good time to take stock of what was happening in the past. Um, one of the things that struck me is that with all the attention focused, quite rightly, in fact, on the recent troubles in the North, it is quite easy to overlook earlier conflicts which ravaged the whole of Ireland, causing what Sean O'Casey amusingly called a terrible state of chassis. Though in truth, there is nothing amusing about any of them. Um, the period 1921 to 23 was among the most bloody and horrific. The partition of Ireland in 1921 was always going to cause problems. And um, uh, it, it's, um, it's actually what, what, what happened was that uh, by the start of, well, first of all, you had the Republican forces who utterly repudiated the treaty and you had the Free State forces who thought that it was the best thing that they could achieve in the circumstances. So a, a, a very bloody and bitter civil war followed very quickly. And, and although it only lasted for less than a year, it was among the most horrific conflicts in, in the country. Um, by the start of 1923, it was plain that the anti-treaty Republican faction was fighting a losing campaign, but they continued to hold out with their guerrilla tactics honed during the War of Independence. They, they held out, especially in Cork and Kerry, Sligo, Mayo in particular, but also in County Wexford. They were mostly reduced to acts of sabotage, um, cutting telegraph wires, blowing up bridges, barracks, destroying roads, and uh, most crucially for my purposes, mounting continuous attacks on the railway network. Um, the, Civil War, the Civil War had made normal life impossible for everyone, but at some level, it almost seemed worse for those who had absolutely no allegiance to one side or the other, but just wanted to get on with their ordinary daily activities. These were the small minority of Southern Irish Protestants, not big house Protestants indeed, but small farmers and shopkeepers and so forth who were dissociated from both of the fighting factions and therefore didn't even have the sense of commitment to a cause to bolster them up, to compensate in a way for all the turmoil and disruption. And, and in, 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 in that context, uh, these people who are sort of caught up in the war, that's emphasised and their deaths appear almost accidental, like random acts. Um, and you, you give a kind of a, you tell of a series of those in, in, in the beginning of your piece, just, you know, a woman on her way to church, shot in the back of the head, uh, two men just going about their daily business, as you say, and then they're dead. Yes, I mean, um, these people were not interested in fighting for Irish freedom. 
Um, the whole period was marked by the most terrible and harrowing acts of violence with atrocity piled on misery, piled on disaster. But somehow the shooting of the two people at the center of my article, the Hornecks, is this, it's almost made worse by the fact that it was so completely motiveless and pointless. It's, it's just the most extreme case imaginable of two young people being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, um, bring us to that then. I mean, the, the the opening line, the first part of your first line is the thing that stays in mind is the pony. And it's this pony that leads us to to these two dead people. Tell us tell us what happened. Well, um, the, these were a, a sort of distant. Well, they're not that distant. They were relatives of mine, my father's cousins. And um, they um, lived on a farm in County Wexford and they were in the habit of spending weekends with their grandfather who lived not far away. And on the evening of um, 4th of March, yes, 1923, they set out as usual from their house just to go the short distance. But um, before they got very far along the road, um, shots rang out. And um, they, well, they, they, as we as we know, they were they were both shot through the head and killed immediately. Um, but the pony then went off. They, it, it, whoever was responsible for this, and it's all very, um, very fishy indeed. As I tried to get to the bottom of what actually happened, but the the pony was left to roam the lanes for the whole night with the two corpses lying at the bottom of the cart. And um, then the, the, they, were, the, they were discovered the following morning by three men going to mass. And you can imagine what a horrific experience this must be, must have been for them. Um, they noticed the pony, there was a blockage in the road because one of the tactics of the Republicans was to cut down trees to block the roadways. The pony was trying and trying. It knew the route inside out, of course, because it had done it many times. It was trying to get past this blockage, but it couldn't. Um, so it was unable to take the the, the trap into the um, the garden of um, the, the the people's grandfather, and the, so um, when the two men discovered this, you can imagine the effect it must have had on them. And can you can you tell us about the people they discovered about their their relationship to each other and their ages and um, that kind of thing? Oh yes, well their name was Hornick. They were Jackie and Margaret Hornick. Jackie was the oldest son and Margaret was the youngest daughter in the Hornick family. Um, he was 25 and she was only 12 years old. And um, eventually, they, when the three men going to Mars had found out what had happened, they, they of course, went into the, their grandfather's house and informed them. And the shock, again, that you can imagine must have been an occasion to the people who were expecting them, had been expecting them all night. And, of course, there were no telephones or anything in those days, so they didn't know what had happened. And to be confronted with this, I mean, is just unimaginable. Um, and you say a hastily convened inquest into the deaths took place. What was the nature of that? Was was there an official element to this? I mean, it ends up sounding almost like a, a kind of mock trial in the end. Uh, what, what happened was that, and this is almost the most shocking thing about it, apart from the killings themselves, the way a cover-up was quickly effected with an alternative and untrue version of events presented as the reality of the disastrous occurrence. Because the story had to be put together in a hurry for the inquest, it is full of holes. 
um, all the business about uh, the private supposedly responsible for having fired one warning shot above the heads of the people on the cart. And then when that failed to produce the desired result of causing them to halt, firing another lethal shot. Now, this, this private um, insisted that he had only that he had fired a shot over their heads and then only fired one shot. So you had a tremendous amount of speculation about how a single shot could have killed two people. With a lot of nonsense talked about a bend in the road having caused the bullet to exit one head and enter um, the other with fatal effect. Of course, this was contradicted by the medical evidence, but it didn't seem to affect the outcome of the inquest, which cleared the Free State Army private of having exceeded his duty by shooting to kill instead of firing a warning shot. A shooting to kill two unarmed civilians, actually two children, as they were described by someone in the aftermath of the tragedy. What I also find shocking is the coroner's remark that a mistake was made and it cannot be rectified now, which seems mm. unduly callous and offhand in the circumstances. Now, the thing was that the, um, the Free State government, the free, the, it was important that representatives of the newly established free state should not be cast in a, a very bad light, which they would have been. Um, this was supposed to be the legitimate government of the country and above reproach. And for this reason, I think the cross-examination was not very rigorous. Certainly the army was allowed to get away with its distortion of the truth. Um, and how did this story reach your desk? Because as you, as you say, there is a personal connection, but it came, it came to you from from another direction? Well, it did, yes. Um, the thing is that in 2012, I um, published a book called A Twisted Root, which was subtitled Ancestral Entanglements in Ireland. And it was to kind of show how in the whole of Ireland, particularly in the North, we are all um, intertwined, you know, whether we consider ourselves to be Protestant, Catholic or whatever. If you go back, you know, one, two, three generations, you will find some representative of the opposite strain cropping up, whether this pleases you or not. It certainly pleased me. But while I was writing this book, I, I used my own ancestors as a kind of illustrative device. I mean, it wasn't a family history, but it was to, you know, just to show how intertwined they all were between Protestant and Catholic and I knew that some, my, my father's family was Protestant, my mother's was Catholic. I knew that something had happened um, to my grand, my Protestant grandmother's Wexford relations, but this had only registered very dimly you know, when I was very young and I could not get to the bottom of it. And by the time I came to write about it, there was no one left that I could actually um, question about it. So I had to use my imagination and got a number of things quite wrong. Well, I wasn't aware that I'd got them so wrong until I received um, communication from two very, very distant relatives, one in Canada and the other in Glasgow, who had read this book and actually knew what the circumstances of this um, killing were. So they sent me an article which had been published in a local, um, a local history journal in Wexford, and it, it gave most of the facts. Um, so I was able to use this as a basis. And it, it was a great relief to me to be able to correct what I'd got wrong in the first place. Um, if the book goes into a second edition, it will certainly be um, revised uh, in the light of this, this occurrence. Mm. But it, it, um, it, it also, I mean, it just made me think about 
you know, um, the kind of lives that people were living then and just trying to get on with their daily activities and with all this going on in the background. And as I say, they weren't um, personally involved in any of it. Mm. You know, in a way, it, it would almost have been better if, if you did have the, the, the sense of, you know, commitment to a cause um, to keep your spirits up, if nothing else. Well, um, certainly it would, it would, it would imbue the, the story with a certain logic you know that he died or she died because of because of this thing rather than just being sucked up in something that is that is beyond them I think one one of the things that that strikes um you as you read this piece is is the feeling that perhaps almost every family on the island of Ireland has such a story lurking in in the attic so to speak you know there's this huge weight of the of the unsaid and the unprocessed Yes, I think this is absolutely true. And it would certainly be interesting, you know, to find out what some of them were. Um, but uh, as, as far as I was concerned, um, um, you know, when I think, when, whenever I had thought about the Civil War myself in the past, I would always think of accounts, you know, written from the perspective of either the Republicans or the Free State side. And but there, there's very little actually written, um, either in fiction or in memoirs, um, you know, to, to sort of show what life was like for people who absolutely had no stake in the business whatsoever. Um, a lot of them, I, mean, I, I, I think I bring up um, William Trevor because he sort of encapsulates the, the atmosphere of sort of decorum and, and a sort of low level um, kind of just getting on with things. And then usually in, in his uh, novels and stories, there is a sudden eruption of, of something that changes the whole perspective, which is very interesting. And then you also have, the, you know, the, there's a, a marvellous memoir by um, Fergal Keane called Wounds, and it does deal with the Civil War, and, but it's, again, it's from the perspective of the his, his um, family, his ancestors were on the Free State side, not the Republican side. And so you do get... Um, all this commitment to you know one one side or the other and um patricia did you what else did you find out about what actually happened because as you say it became it, it seemed clear that there was some sort of hurried inquiry at the time that was very unsatisfactory uh, yes well you know as i say that they, they it was imperative that um any activity any actions of the free state army should be presented in the best possible light. So as far as I could gather from all the bits and pieces that I read about this and pieced together, um, it, it seemed that uh, what came out at the inquest was that they, they had been shot by this private who, who got terribly confused when he was giving evidence and contradicted himself, etc. But as I say, he got away with it. But um, the, when, when, when the two distant relatives sent me a copy of this article, which was written by someone called Mark Cobb, whom I'd never heard of, he had gone into it in great detail and he'd eventually interviewed some people in New Ross who had been alive when this happened. This was, I think he carried out his investigations during the 1980s. So he was able to speak to people who had probably been children at the time, but they remembered it. And they, they all um, claimed that what had happened was that um, the Free State, they, they were guarding Palace East Station. And when the pony and trap came um, past it, they had been forewarned that 
two Republicans were coming disguised as an old man and an old woman to blow up Palace East Station. So without, you know, considering that somebody else might have been on the road or whatever, um, one a, a sniper who was stationed there simply opened fire and, you know, killed these two utterly innocent people. So it was really an absolute an absolutely dreadful event. There, there was actually, once I found out this, I of course began to look to check all, all my histories of Ireland, etc., with particular reference to the Civil War, to see if I could find any reference whatsoever to this particular event. And of course, there was absolutely nothing. Mm. It was obviously considered too local and insignificant in the wider scheme of things to merit any attention. I did eventually come across a small book, almost a pamphlet called um, uh, County Wexford Civil War, which was published in 1995 by someone called Seamus McSuin from Wexford, who um, he, who mentioned the, the Hornick um, business. And what he, what he said was that um, he said it was one of the saddest incidents of the entire civil war. Mm-hmm. And he, he went on to relate, you know, how the two had left their, their home, obviously, in good spirits and what happened to them. One of the one of the fishier aspects of, of that whole um, story and the, the um, inquest that followed is that Private Phelan, who is who is the man who supposedly fired them, yes. fired the shots may not even have been there is that right i mean he yeah. on the whole he, he he seems if if we were talking about fiction we would talk about a a character who doesn't feel very developed at all he almost seems like a cardboard cutout of a man yes absolutely um my surmise is that he and and the uh, a couple of others would simply roped in you know to to affect this cover up um the, this uh, Seamus McSuin in his book also provides some excerpts from the transcript of the inquest, when the army personnel undergoing cross-examination could come up with no better reply to almost every question than, I could not say, I am not prepared to answer that, there is no one to tell the tale now. And it was left at that, with everyone expressing their sincere sympathy for Mr. and Mrs. Hornick, the loss of their children. And I hope that was a great consolation to them. Mm. It sounds of a piece with the line that you quoted before um, from the coroner, mm. um, you know, a, a mistake was made and it cannot be rectified now, nothing to see here, basically, move move on. Yes, yes. It would be interesting to um, see, as you say, you know, people probably have these stories in their attics, to see how many people could come up with some something, some similar incident. I mean, this one, of course, was particularly tragic and dramatic, you know, because of what happened, but the, everyone must have these family stories somewhere. Mm. And what do you take, just finally, um, then, Patricia, and we'll have to um, leave you to get on with your day, but what do you take from this story, this experience of, of, of digging? Um, I hesitate to put it so bluntly, but is there a, a lesson or a, or a message to glean here? Is it is it just that everyone has these stories and they're yet to come to light? Well, um, yes, I mean, I, I think it, it was quite a shock to me, you know, to find out what had actually happened after all the misapprehensions that I'd, all the the, the nonsense that I, I tried to, um, uh, try, tried when I was trying to establish some, some event that had happened. Uh, what, what I would take from it, I suppose, is just that the horror of war and what happens, you know, the the, the absolute tragedies and, on you know, on a human scale. I mean, this, it's... It, uh, 
quite apart from the statistics, you know, which are so abominable, all the, the people killed, blown up, shot, murdered, um, victims of arson, whatever, um, the, when it really brings it home to you when you come down to the actual personal tragedy and you can envisage, you know, the, these two young people um, just with their whole lives in front of them and they're, they're wiped out in an instant for no reason. Mm. Well, um, Patricia Craig, um, thanks very much for telling us this story. Thanks for talking to us today. Oh, thank you. Still to come on the show, finding Proust again, the insights and revelations of a legendary manuscript and how fact and fiction shape their narratives on screen. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So you'll have the paper turning up on your doorstep every week where you'll find all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast alongside dozens of other pieces, as well as getting access to everything online and in the app edition. Uh, should you find yourselves waiting for a bus without your print issue handy. The digital access also includes the website and app archives and the historical archive, which goes back to 1902. So you can look up Walter de la Mare and T.S. Eliot and read what Virginia Woolf made of D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. There's original writing by Roland Barthes, Saul Bellow, John Updike, Muriel Spark, Chinua Achebe, Patricia Highsmith, Umberto Eco, and Susan Sontag, and poems by Hardy, Auden Frost, Plath, Larkin, Brodsky, Paul Muldoon, and Anne Carson. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we ring up Toby Lishtig for his views on some recent political films, Lucy, you're going to tell us about this legendary Proust manuscript published conveniently just in time for the 150th anniversary of his birth. So um, what is it? Well, it is uh, the holy grail, apparently, of Proustian scholarship. So if you're a Proust scholar, you know what I'm talking about. You can just, you know, listen to me get things wrong for the next five minutes. Um, (laughs) If not, it is a manuscript called Les 75 Feuillets, which means the 75 pages, which um, has been referred to for a long time, but no one's ever found it. And basically everybody thought it was lost. It's the earliest draft of A la Recherche du Temps Perdu. And it was um, mentioned um, uh, by the Proust critic Bernard de Fallois, apparently in 1954. And then um, there were... um, Proust's niece um, left some manuscripts to the uh, to the National Library in 1962, and there was a lot of hope that they would, that the 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 foyer would be there, and they weren't. So everyone thought, oh well, they've been lost. Um, and then um, they were discovered in the archives of Bernard de Fallois um, in 2018 after he died, and they were published. Uh, what's the date? They were published um, not very long ago in France. And uh, there was excitement, shall I say? I can, I can well imagine. And so, um, what will readers? I mean, a French that is, because they're not translated yet. But um, what will they get to enjoy in these seventy-five? Actually, it's seventy-six, isn't it? Seventy-six pages. It's actually seventy-six. Yeah, very, very misleading title. <laughs> well, our uh, I haven't read them, um, um, but our reviewer uh, Marion Schmidt says. Um, they're essentially their sort of first draft of what would become In Search of Lost Time. Um, and so they are sort of drafts or, or, or scenes, I suppose, that, that people familiar with the book will immediately recognise. But, you know, they're in their first incarnation, so they're slightly altered or there's different versions. Um, I think there is a bit from, from near the beginning between um, the part where he's uh, he's waiting for his mum to come upstairs and when she does I think there's a bit there that's that's early on and yeah they will find the f- the first versions of what became this in itself legendary book and, and she says um our reviewer writes as a private document not intended for publication the manuscript yields secrets that the final version has carefully concealed so some of these revelations are are s- relatively small things it's it's the detail of names, isn't it? Yes, I mean it seems like a small thing, but it's. I think it 
probably feels quite significant to actually read it you know for the first time that that's really what it was in that in that the the grandmother and the mother in this first draft are called the names the first names of his grandmother Adele and his mother Jeanne and in fact Marcel figures as well doesn't he yes yeah um and uh, and then later on he changes the names and the mother is always um Maman or Mamère and so that's you know, if you're looking at autofiction, I mean, you know, you could have a long debate about when autofiction began, long time ago probably, but this is a pretty, pretty prime example of it. But but it is most definitely fiction. He's he is changing that um, so that they are they are characters, and it's uh, it's less obviously his family, as it were. Schmidt quotes that lovely line. Um, she says, um, quoting from Proust from *Time Regained*: "A book is a great cemetery where the names have been effaced from most of the tombs and are no longer legible." Yeah, so and he, we're, get, we're getting those exactly. back now. He's, the, the names that he himself has effaced, mm. and so mm. they, yeah, they have become uh, legible in this one. And then there are the, there are also yes, yeah, sort of a bit bigger scenes, um, which he is uh, to some extent, uh, which have been rewritten and put into the flow of the rest of the book. I think the point is that if you're a aficionado lover of Proust do you know what I mean this is really exciting mm, because absolutely. yeah it's just it's seeing the first sketches of this monumental influential mm. work and there are some some substantial bits that 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 are in this manuscript that never made the final cut as well it's not it's not just details it's it's there's a whole dream sequence that that didn't make the final cut which again gives you know insight into what the because he was in his mid late 30s at this point he wasn't a known writer no not at all he wasn't known and hadn't had he had anything published by now he hadn't had a novel published um he had I think he'd had essays published I'm almost certainly wrong about this I'm not a Proustian scholar for that reason we have a Proustian scholar writing <laughs> the piece <laughs> that's, this week. Yeah, that's why I asked one to write about it exactly. <laughs> yeah exactly uh, and it's also got it it's got um essays and sort of um, uh, comments uh, written with it, very good notes uh, and things like that, which uh, apparently are, are very wonderful and interesting, written by um, the great, she calls the great Proust scholar, Natalie Moriac Dyer, who is also Proust's great grand niece. So it's all, you know, it's from the source, all mm. this stuff. It's pretty, it's pretty pure, pure Proust stuff. Well, all that remains then is for us to, to point vigorously um point our readers vigorously towards the website where this piece will will appear and in the meantime then lucy where else are you taking us you're taking us somewhere completely different now now we're talking and thinking this week about fact and fiction specifically how film deals with the two and how it shapes their narratives it's particularly acute perhaps when dealing with real world political traumatic and unresolved events how do we represent thorny or tragic political situations on screen? Our own Toby Lishtig, politics editor of the TLS, friend and stalwart of the podcast, has written about this for us, and we're very happy he's here to talk to us about it. Toby, thank you as ever for joining us. My pleasure. I'm very happy to be on. Um, so you've considered four works for us in this piece. It's three films and one TV show, uh, and we'll get to the specifics of them in a minute. But, uh, but can you tell us first, what's the one thing that you say all of these films, all of these works need, whether they're fact or fiction? Um, well, the one thing is character or story. So that's two things, except in in these terms, I sort of feel like they're the same sort of thing. 
So there's a, you know, they, they require some kind of glue to bind the narrative together. And that, you know, takes a form of character. And the ones that are good on character development are very good, effective. And the ones that aren't, I contend, are less effective. And so you need, but and your point that might be slightly counterintuitive, I suppose, is that you need character as much in a documentary as you do in a work of fiction. Essentially, yes. I mean, it's, you know, I, I've, I've put it quite crudely and, you know, there are, various different approaches to political film making political documentary making and there are films that are far more essayistic and you know feel like they could be a single voice polemic you know you don't necessarily think one needs character or character development for that but they still need narrative and narrative development and even then the voice itself is a character uh, so i'm talking uh, about the first uh, piece which is the adam curtis series his new series can't get you out of my head and you know he is the kind of quintessential modern essayistic documentary maker his his films are voiced by him they're written by him they are entirely made up of archive um you know material drawn from the bbc archive and they're, they're basically essays set to image and music um but even they require a kind of thread one would hope and one of the problems with this series is that there's not a very tangible thread. Um, my point about this is that he, you know, the character in this series, and in fact in all Adam Curtis series, is Adam Curtis himself. Um, and it's a character that has worked very well in the past at times, and it was very fresh and exciting when he first kind of burst onto the scene in the 90s. I feel he's a bit tired now, and that he doesn't really uh, make much sense, to be honest. Um, there is, in fact, fear. There was a wonderful um, parody that you shared with me a while ago. I think it's by... I did. I was just thinking about that guiltily. <laughs> yeah. Not guiltily. I mean, it's wonderful. To, to be honest, you know, do read my review in the TLS. But, I mean, if you really want to get a handle on Adam Curtis in two and a half minutes, watch Ben Woodham's parody of him on YouTube. Um, and actually, I realised the parody itself was made 10 years ago. And since then, he's only become more parody for himself. And it's just, it's basically about, I think the opening line of the parody is, you know, this this is a story about how form got overtaken, or now how, uh, how story got overtaken by form, how content got subsumed by form. And it's basically about how Curtis has been doing the same thing over and over again for very many years, but it's it sort of become untethered from his original, um, you know, ex extremely acute way of telling story. And now it just feels like a kind of crazy confetti collage. Well, let's move on to the films then, because that was, then. The, that was the TV show. Though, actually, just as, a, as an aside, you do mention another TV show, uh, not particularly under review, but you, you, you cite Once Upon a Time in Iraq as, the, as a way to do it, don't you? As a, as a kind of wonderful example of how to do that. Well, exactly. And how to deal with characters and deal with narrative. So, yeah, very, very briefly, this was James... Um, uh, a Blumel series, I think it came out last year, and it was it was an overview of, of you know, the US and UK allied intervention in Iraq and the de deposition of Saddam Hussein and everything that happened afterwards. And, you know, we know the story, we've read all the news reports, we feel very well versed in it. It could have been potentially quite a dry journalistic overview, but it was totally brilliant. And it was because of the, the, the access they got, the different uh, interviewees they had on all different sides from you know American soldiers to politicians to to, to, um, to Iraqi soldiers to ex-jihadists to civilians and they were able to put together very cleverly because you know the, the way the narratives were constructed over the course of the series characters kept on coming back and interviews kept on coming back at you know later parts in the series and sort of developed their characters you've got this incredible overview of this country 
that fell apart and then kept on falling apart. And it was just very, very brilliantly and beautifully done. And it sort of, you know, it, it was far more than journalism. It was, it was documentary art making, basically. Um, so that's one from last year, uh, one that, what the, probably the biggest and best known of the films that you deal with um, in this review, The Mauritanian. Yes. And so this is dramatising a true story, isn't it? It is. Um, so this is Kevin MacDonald, who, who makes documentaries and fiction films. So he's sort of done both. And it's it's the story of Mohamedou Slahi. So he is he, he was a Maur- he is a Mauritanian. He was one of the detainees in Guantanamo Bay. He spent many, many years there, I think 16 in total. And he wrote a prison diary called Guantanamo Diary. So it's, you know, this this film is based on his diary. There's been extensive journalism written about him. There's an incredibly good piece in The New Yorker by Ben Taub, which came out a couple of years ago. It's about it's sort of a, a 30,000 word long read or something. It's like a short, you know, a short book. Um, and it is based on his story. I mean, it actually opens rather hubristically, I think, with the words, this is a true story, <laughs> um, which is actually what you've chosen as your headline for the piece. Um, it's, um, it's not very good, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, let's move on. Inc- no, tell us. Let's move on. I'm sorry. I do like the other two films. You know, <laughs> listeners, keep listening. There's good stuff to come. Um, Slahi is an incredibly, incredibly fascinating character. And what happened to him was horrendous in, in all ways. Um, I, I could, you know, I could spend an hour talking about his life. I won't do that here. I'll tell you very briefly about the film. The film essentially concentrates on an aspect of his court case when he was detained in Guantanamo. He'd already been there for several years and he was trying to, or his lawyer was trying to um, get him a proper trial, you know, trying, trying to get him habeas corpus. And it was about, it sort of focuses quite narrowly on his sort of treatment in Guantanamo, or that glosses over it a bit as well, and the kind of battle between his lawyer and the prosecuting lawyer, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. His lawyer um, is played by J.D. Foster, to to um uh you know sort of to, to take him to trial and basically um without wishing to you know give too much away um it is revealed that he has been tortured and that his confession was made under terrible duress and the the prosecuting figure and um, the real character called Stuart Couch played by Benedict Cumberbatch says oh well I'm not going to I'm not going to continue with this anymore because you know uh torture's happened and it's sort of it's basically it's a, it's a kind of courtroom drama and it's there's a kind of an element of American saviourdom dare I say about it I mean it's sort of right it's sort of rather than focusing on Slahi himself it's sort of it's sort of about the clash between the Jodie Foster character and the Cumberbatch character you know both of whom um in real life were, were fine upstanding moral figures but even that clash feels a bit cheaply done because actually there wasn't really much jeopardy in it as soon as as soon as Stuart Couch in real life discovered the torture, he backed down and didn't want to prosecute anymore. And that's sort of all that happened really in that aspect of the story. And it's fine, you know, it's, it's an incredibly complex story what happened to this guy over 30 years and it's impossible to condense that all into a you know, feature film of two hours and it's fine to kind of concentrate on one aspect. It just, it was not, in my opinion, in any way, the most interesting aspect of what happened to him and his story and the whole Guantanamo story. And even on its own terms, it wasn't particularly compelling. It wasn't a particularly good courtroom drama. The script's not very good. Um, I mean, Jodie Foster won Best Supporting Actress for her role. Um, the Golden, was it the Golden Globes, was it? Yes, the, sorry, yeah. sorry, Golden Globes. Yeah, not, not an Oscar, sorry. Yeah, Golden Globes. Um, 
I just, and then the, the score was incredibly intrusive. Um, so, you know, you've got this bad script, bad score. Yeah, I just, I just wasn't very convinced. Sorry. I was just going to say, it sounds like it pulls off the rather difficult trick of being full of dramatic cliches, despite it actually being true. Absolutely. Full of dramatic cliches, not much actual drama, and despite it actually being true. And I, I mentioned this in the review, the, kind, the most affecting bit of the whole film is there is at the very end, just before the credits, there is like two minutes of interview with the real Slahi, now released from Guantanamo after 16 years, at home, still dealing with various difficulties, which I won't go into here. And he's incredibly engaging and just, you know, you're suddenly struck by how interesting he is as a character. And it kind of undermines everything that we've already seen in the film. So you think, oh, that's who he is. It's nothing to do with the way he was portrayed um, in the film, um, particularly, it's to do with the way his character wasn't developed. So we never really get under his skin. We don't really get to know him. He's a bit of a he's a bit of a kind of victim character. Um, and you know, the real Slahi is so fascinating that you know, in this instance, the kind of the, the, the fiction proves itself unequal to the fact. And the next one that you talk about is a documentary, in fact, about another terrible thing, The Dissident, which is about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in 2018, which begins with a focus on his friend, doesn't it, um, Omar Abdulaziz? Exactly. And this, the focus on Abdulaziz is, is brilliant, actually, because the point about him is he is another Saudi dissident living in exile in Canada. He was a friend and colleague of Khashoggi, and actually they were involved in a kind of a media operation, um, which essentially was one of the reasons why um, he ended up being murdered because, because of this media operation, which was to kind of counter a Saudi disinformation campaign on Twitter. Um, and Abdulaziz is kind of a Khashoggi in waiting. I mean, he is, he's been threatened. Um, you know, it's, it's, he's incredibly brave, he's incredibly outspoken still, but he, you know, it, it, it would in, in no way be a surprise if we were reading about him until three or four years time as another victim of an assassination. Um, you know, he, so, so you're sort of, you're getting this story about Khashoggi, who's a fascinating character, and that's all very well done. And there's an interview with his, or several interviews with his, his fiance and other people who knew him, but you've also got this central figure who not only knew Khashoggi, but kind of is a sort of a Khashoggi himself. And that was done very, very well. It was just a tremendous piece of access work. And it, it, I suppose that exemplifies your point about having, about the character, because actually it, it's not Khashoggi that drives it there because he can't really, but it's but it's Abdulaziz who drives it. Exactly, it's Abdulaziz. And you get, I mean, there is, there is an element of, we do get to know Khashoggi a bit through the way his life is constructed, but it doesn't, yeah, exactly. It doesn't kind of painstakingly try to, you know, reconstruct exactly who he was. I mean, you know, there's plenty of footage of him as a as a as a journalist talking an interview and giving lectures and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's it's there's this kind of dual thing going on and it and it works extremely well. And you know, I thought I knew a fair bit about who Khashoggi was and what happened to him, but I don't, you know, there are some aspects of the story. I mean maybe other listeners will know all about this, but I didn't, for example, the way Saudi troll farms operate, kind of government-sponsored troll farms to kind of spread disinformation. I, we, we know this happens in, in, you know, all over the place, but it was just, it was very, very good on that aspect of Saudi media. And also the way journalism operates, so Khashoggi himself, he was quite, quite close to the, the Saudi royal family. He was essentially a client journalist. He was, you know, kind of court journalist. Um, it's almost a bit akin to being a court poet. And when you're in that position, you sort of, 
you have to know when to push the boundary and how, how far to push the boundary as a journalist. And he essentially pushed it too far. Um, and then when he was in exile, because he'd pushed it too far, he carried on pushing it. And that was essentially the reason for his downfall. It's very, very moving. The, 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 the final film is about another real and appalling historical event, um, Quo Vadis Aida, that's the last one, isn't it? And um, But in this case, so it is about a real event, but the central story is, is fictional within that real event. Is that right? It is. That's exactly right. And actually, in this case, it's a it's a uh, question of the fact. Uh, sorry, the fiction absolutely being um, equal to the fact. It's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant film. It was nominated for an Oscar for Best Foreign Feature. Um, it didn't win, but it was, it was nominated. Um, and it's probably out of the four things that I have reviewed, it's probably the best, um, if I could be as crude as that, to use that metric. Um, it's about Srebrenica, so the genocide um, in, in the Bosnian, Bosnian-Serbian town of uh, Srebrenica in 1995, when 8,000 Bosniak men and boys were murdered by Ratko Mladic, Mladic's army. And it basically, it, it, it focuses on that very specific period in, in July of that year, 1995, when Srebrenica was overrun. The refugees from the town either fled or were ended up in the, the Dutch-administered UN refugee camp. And essentially, the UN soldiers, the Dutch UN soldiers, proved powerless to stop Mladic's men rounding everyone up and committing the massacre. So that's the real bit, but it's told through the story of this fictional character who is a translator working with the UN. Um, so she's sort of both victim and, you know, kind of neutral bystander with the UN. And it's her job to, you know, to, to go in and translate what the Dutch commander is saying to Mladic and all that sort of stuff, and her attempt to save her family, her two grown-up sons and her husband. So it focuses on this very, very personal story. It's very tightly done. Um, but of course, you know, the kind of wider political uh, background uh, is, you know, is, is explored through this story. And it, it makes extremely good use of flashback as well. So we're sort of taken back to other times when Srebrenica was just an ordinary town and, uh, and you know, um, Bosniaks and Serbs mixed freely, and uh, and uh, yeah, before before this terrible genocide happened. And and so in in this in this instance, do you think the the central story sort of focuses it, moves it along, provides an emotional centre? In, in in this sense, it really works. You think, and in fact, you think it works the best out of all of them, maybe. Exactly, and it provides. Um, I mean, you know, in terms of the sort of thing it's doing using a kind of personal story to look at a wider political thing, it's probably most similar um, to the Mauritanian and it kind of, you know, and it, it also it's a fiction film as the Mauritanian is. And it sort of, it, it works in precisely the way the Mauritanian doesn't. It manages to tell that wider complex political story through this very focused personal story. Um, and it's incredibly moving and beautifully done. It's very well shot, scores not very intrusive. Um, it just it coheres really well, and it's very you know the the acting's superb. I really really recommend it, and I I think I learnt a lot about about what had happened um, uh, during those few days from watching the film. But it's not you know you might you, you might know the ins and outs of, of what happened extremely well, but still be incredibly incredibly moved by this. So I wonder if that's that exemplifies the fact that it's not 
which approach it's not that there's one approach that is better than another but it's that it's down to um how each particular filmmaker um sort of fleshes it out does that make sense yeah totally you know I'd, I'd, I'd love to watch a documentary about Srebrenica of which there are many I'd love to watch a documentary on Mohamedou Slahi and I'd happily watch a fiction film about James Khashoggi that's uh, so, Jamal Khashoggi you know <laughs> these could all be extremely well done in different ways it's just it's just it's how you do it isn't it it's how you do it <laughs> <laughs> it's how you do it that's, that's my one-liner <laughs> I would say um, I hope you enjoyed it, but it was a I'm aware it's a very grueling set of films that 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 you sat through. And yeah, I haven't reviewed a series of rom coms, and I'm happy to you know do that next time. Okay, <laughs> maybe next time I will ask you to do <laughs> a series of rom coms. <laughs> Meanwhile, Toby, thank you very much for coming on to talk to us. My pleasure. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Patricia Craig and Toby Lishtig. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.